Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and this will go much easier if you don't lie. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm trying to win the game with a crap hand. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of alliance theories and syncretism. <laughs> and everyone, we'll just keep this in. Uh, Dan did a little, like, sort of cheer for me because I said that correctly. Today, we'll be talking about the penultimate episode of The Expanse. After that, the week after that, we'll be talking about the ultimate episode of The Expanse. And then we'll be doing the ultimate Expanse recap episode, where we're going to talk about basically the whole thing. Right, Dan? Is that the plan? That, in addition to the sort of bonus scenes that have been added throughout season six, which we have not commented on during each of the episodes for technical reasons. Which is to say, we we think y'all have a tolerance of about an hour for our voices. <laughs> yes. So that's the technical reason. Yeah. If we sounded prettier, I'm sure we would do longer episodes and, y- and y'all would eat them up. But anyway, we're going to do an episode that's basically kind of just looking back at The Expanse in a very general way, I think, talking about the series and maybe some of what it changed for us and how it's impacted pop culture at large. Mm-hmm. And if you are following along on your calendar you realize that that takes us into January. And in the past month and into January, there's tons of interesting sci-fi being released right now, in fact, and about which I'm sure you desperately need our opinions. (laughs) And we have a solution to that. Dan, would you like to tell them the solution we came up with? Our solution is... Our special episode, which was intended to be a mini-sode, but in fact, I think goes about an hour long <laughs> I think it's over an hour it, yeah yeah you'll find it in your feed today in which still intolerance levels still with intolerance still with intolerance levels in which we talk about both the new Adam McKay joint Don't Look Up as well as the fourth Matrix film now Anna we did not do these movies as a regular episode correct that is right. It is a special episode because we wanted to reserve January. Like we could have just waited to do those movies in January. But in January, Dan, you and I have made uh, special plans. We have it's a special Im- pact. Yes. Imrichary. Imrichary. <laughs> Imrichary. We made up the word. There's no right way to pronounce it. Yep. We'll be looking at the work of Roland Imrich all January. Dan, why? 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 That's a good question, Anna, and I bet our listeners are wondering what the hell has gotten into us. And the reason is, is first, let's face it, Roland Emmerich is a rich vein to tap when it comes to sci-fi and poli-sci. <laughs> but the second reason is that if we sequence this right, we will be talking about the key parts of Roland Emmerich's oeuvre right up into leading to Moonfall, which is, looks to be like... Moonfall. And now stop this episode and go watch the trailer for Moonfall. Yes. And then come back. Okay, you're back. You're back? Have you laughed? Because Anna and I laughed. We laughed very hard at this trailer, and we cannot wait to watch this film because it looks like a good, good, bad movie is what I'm trying to say. Well, I think what you're trying to say, Dan, is the exact kind of both introspective and weighty That demands our attention. You're so right. It's, we're we're gonna we're gonna pay attention. Basically, to it listeners, as it asked us to. It really was a choice between Roland Emmerich or Ingmar Bergman. I mean, that was basically one of our. It was, and we went with Emmerich. <laughs> and then after that, I mean, just to be totally honest, we have no idea what we what we'll be doing. I think we should probably do a book <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of our brains is what you're saying on yeah, yeah. we should do something like actually weighty and introspective yeah. so maybe a kind of big book we might do it just off the top of my head people have been asking us to do ministry of the future which 
I started and could not finish because of the horrific first chapter. It is long and supposedly important. Obama recommended it. But Obama also recommended the three-body problem. So (laughs) I'm not sure if I completely trust him on, you know, sci-fi recommendations. But anyway, we'll do something that balances our brains out. Yes. Uh, And if you have suggestions for other things we should do, there's a couple ways, a few ways that you can suggest things. One is to, to find us on Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. And then we also, we have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Space the Nation. You can actually become a patron on that page. Dan, can you tell our listeners a few reasons why they should become patrons? Do you like swag listeners? Because if you're a patron, they're swag. Okay, there is also early access to the podcast. There is access to our Discord channel, which is fun and lively and legitimately interesting. You also get access to our AMAs, which we normally do on the first Saturday of every month. And finally, if we get to 250 patrons, and we are more than halfway there, and actually we've been picking up some of the pace, given the Expanse recaps, we will do another special patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by you, the patrons. Just to be clear... We are not going to read all of the Dune books, if that's what you request. <laughs> I have my limits as a podcaster in terms of what I will do. But there are many things I will do to we, please our patrons. We are interested in, in reading perhaps the first Foundation book. We have discussed yes, that. Yes, we've toyed and with that sort idea. of a, a follow-up to our episode on the Foundation uh, TV series, which uh, regular listeners may recall we, we both enjoyed and did not enjoy. Like it was a. <laughs> you know what? We never did the mini sode in which we discussed our our utter disregard our, for the our true feelings. Yeah, our our feelings about the end of that first season, and maybe we will do that at some point. Maybe before the second season, I don't know. But that might also be like we can marry those two. Is what I'm saying. Yes. Also, another way to support us is to rate and review us and to tell your friends and neighbors. Apparently, Dan, and people listening know this, but apparently there's a fair number of people out there who do not realize that we exist. <laughs> what? And who, yeah, I know. I don't understand. And not only what are you that, talking about? They, might, they might actually want to know. Not, not only do they not realize we exist, which is proportionately, we are a rounding error yeah. on, on people who know that, but there are people who are fans of the churn. And would like to hear our intelligent and insightful discussions of Expanse recaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, intelligent and insightful discussions of Expanse shows, but don't don't know that that's what we do. So that is actually a real reason to tell your friends and neighbors. Please and then do. there's the people who know we do Expanse recaps, but don't know that we do other stuff. Because we do In a lot case. of other stuff. In fact, I believe we have hit the one year mark for Space yeah. the Nation. Um, so this, we are coming rapidly to the end of, as, as Anna put it, season one, and then we will have season two, which will be our gritty reboot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm open to suggestions about what the gritty reboot. reboot I'm just thinking I should do the gritty uh, reboot talk, like Anna, did you like this episode? <laughs> 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 I am the darkness. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> no, well, you are the darkness, Dan. <laughs> and now let's actually start our show. Um, people are probably waiting for that's that. a fair point and, let's and, and that would be uh, to begin with the recap of the show which is traditionally done and will be done by you okay let's start as again all of season six has started with laconia where zan feels funny but at least he's feeling something am i right so kara takes zan to the rock face and calls for the strange dogs to pick him up and do that voodoo that they do so well <laughs> and fixing things she then falls asleep in the dark 
When she wakes up, Zan is gone, and she can hear her parents frantically calling her name and searching for her. Kara sends the empty gurney on its way, because apparently that's possible, and decides to hide because she's nine years old and her theory of mind is not well developed, so she cannot appreciate that her parents, after losing one child, might be hanging on by their last thread after they wake up and discover that the body is missing as well as their other child. No, as a parent, I'm not projecting here at all, Anna. <laughs> I did find it. I, I did find that particular scene problematic as well. I, I mean, just from like even a kid. I mean, I guess she could be worried about getting in trouble and trying to get in the head of a nine-year-old. Maybe she left a but... note. I kind of wonder that. Like, you know. Yes. Anyway, it's completely understandable that her parents are flipping yes, out. Yes, actually. And, and again, we only see her parents for like a brief second. They acted that very well. I'm going to give the props <laughs> on that. So, Carol wanders into another clearing and discovers three strange dogs who have kind of sort of fixed in. He still seems to be Zan, but not exactly Zan, as, correct me if I'm wrong, Anna, his eyes seem full of protomolecule, and he's talking about substrate and seeing things that he's never seen before, but he does hug his sister, so there are real emotions there. Anna, I'm going to be honest, I think this whole Laconia arc might be where there's a divide between those of us who have actively read the books like you and those of us who have only watched the television show like me, because my reaction as a non-book reader is that this had better get connected to the rest of the story. Now, they only have one episode to do it, but I don't know how they're going to do that. And also, I'm kind of worried what's going to happen to the strange dogs once their abilities become known to the humans of Laconia. Am I right to be worried about that? I have no idea how they're going to stick the landing on this particular plot arc, honestly. I mean, I've read a lot of the novellas. I'm unfortunately not a completist. And I'll confess that part of that is I want to have more expanse to read, Mm -hmm. like, later so i kind of have like i i'm actually on the very last few pages of the last novel and i haven't been able to finish it because i want there to be more expanse in my life (laughs) so i will get around to reading strange dogs i have read books seven through nine however which are all about laconia when about other stuff too but laconia plays a huge part Mm -hmm. in those books and uh, cara and zan play parts in those books and I just have no idea how they're going to get there. I just I just have no idea. And also, there is this feeling, and it's, bec- it's probably because I know the future of those characters and the future of this whole Arc. reanimation oh. thing, mm-hmm. that the whole thing feels like a trailer for another series. Mm. It doesn't even, it feels not only disconnected from our main plot, but also bringing us somewhere else if that makes sense yeah. like it's no, it's not even like a parallel thing it's perpendicular the way i would put it is you know? this almost you know this feels like an mcu film the after credit scene yes that, that is a very very that good is the way analogy. i would put it and in fact it will not shock me if the expanse ends with an after credit scene shot in laconia <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, they've talked about they're going to do more stuff, but I believe that Dan and Ty have said that they're done with the Expanse universe. Interesting. Dan and Ty are, are uh, as listeners probably know, the, the yeah. two halves of James S.A. Corey, who is the yeah. nominal author of the Expanse series. Yeah. They are going to definitely do more stuff, and they should. I mean, I look forward oh, to God, it. Oh, God, yeah. But um, anyway, I am very curious about how this is going to go. You, you and I have briefly compared this final season to the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. final season, and both of us were optimistic mm-hmm. that this season would not be the incredible flattening disappointment that the Game of Thrones a season was. Mm-hmm. And already I can say it's not that. No, it's not that at all. Right? They're going to have to pull some multiple rabbits out of multiple hats, I feel like. 
to like completely stick the landing on this. The one. way I would put it, Anna, is that I and I think we've talked about this offline, but I agree with you. I think you said it first. Six episodes is too short for this season. There's a lot going on, and it's not that. Again, I agree with you. It's, no one is is mailing in this last season. The, the acting mm-hmm. is really good. The characters mostly, you know, make sense. You know, they haven't done anything like they did to Daenerys in Game of Thrones or what have you. Right. But, like, the show hasn't really breathed all that much, I think. And that's one of the, the things that I think is, is missing. Because that's one of the things I've loved about The Expanse is there are always good character moments in every episode. And Yeah, and one of the things we both love and we've mentioned mm-hmm. is that it, throughout The Expanse, you've gotten great minor characters. Right. And we've continued to get yeah. good minor characters, but they aren't given anything. Exactly. You know, like <laughs> just they get like literally one or two scenes and we don't even get the kind of brief resolution yeah. that we got, you know, with other characters that we saw sort of by the way in, in previous seasons. In any case, uh, speaking of the main arc of the show, Dan, let's get to the main arc. Of the All show. right, let's pivot to the Free Navy, which we have broken down into uh, two segments. So part one. The MCRN fleet has, in fact, burned for the ring. They wipe out the Free Navy sentries and threaten Medina Station very belligerently. Medina responds, however, with a railgun attack from the ring station at the center of the ring, destroying all MCRN ships, I believe, within the span of 10 seconds. So RIP Admiral Carino. Grog rations, however, for everyone in the Free Navy is they are very happy about their victory. Marco should be happy, but he's not happy because at least one belter station has kicked out Free Navy forces... Also, he's still wearing his man bun, and listeners know how we feel about that choice. (laughs) Rosenfeld is less perturbed by both Marco's man bun and the Belter Revolt, pointing out that so long as the Free Navy controls the ring, it remains the hegemonic actor, and so, hey, maybe they should go get to the ring, like, friggin' now. Anna, I I do share Marco's fear of the brittle nature of his position. That actually does make some sense, and so he's not wrong about that, and I find myself defending Marco this season, which is just annoying me even more. But... More importantly, Rosenfeld is way more right in that why the hell are they not at the ring already? Strategically, I do not understand why they are mucking around anywhere else. It makes no sense. The ring is clearly the most important choke point in the entire galaxy, and I don't understand what they're not doing at the ring now. I agree, and I think your question makes me want to sort of pull back Mm -hmm. a little and ask, so what's the point of the Free Navy again? Yeah. Like, I get to get under the heel of the boot of the inners. Mm-hmm. Right. Got it. And I understand what the coalition is doing. They want to bring Marco to justice, mm-hmm. right? That's the coalition happening. Right. Sure. Marco has control of the ring dance. Right. Like, that should be it. End of story. Yes. Like, he is, they are the hegemon, to use the language of the political science yeah. world, right? Like, just every everyone should be at the ring mm. telling people what to yeah. do, you know? Like, we control the rings, therefore, all of this shit that happens beyond the rings is in, under our control, all these new resources. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to do, Earth, Mars, you got to go through us. Right, I mean, right at this point, Marco has the protomolecule, he's got protomolecule tech, he's got access to resources from other worlds beyond the ring gates. So this also right. led to the question, I'm still not sure why they have, why there was all this mucking about about the supply depots in the belt. That doesn't yeah. make any sense either to me, frankly, because... Well, I got little insight on that. Okay, Sorry no, 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 to, no, to interrupt you. Which is that I believe the even the Goldilocks world mm-hmm. 
um, beyond the ring gates don't have food for humans. That is true. As we know this from Laconia. That's a fair point. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it, so it's not, the, but it is a solution in forward in time right. for sure. Yeah. Right. And for instance, if you ever wanted to trade stuff to a colony that's established beyond the ring gates, you would have to go through Marco. It's just like, I mean, I I feel like it's a stupid question, but legitimately, like, what what is a victory for the Free Navy at this point? Why aren't they all at the ring gates kind of figuring out a good way to administratively rule over the rest of the galaxy? Yes. Right? I don't get like, this either. And, you know, <laughs> and let's be blood. Partly it's because... I think Marco doesn't care about governing. He cares about fighting. Yes. But, you know, yes. characters like Rosenfeld and others, you know, if you're a belter, like, you know, there's a point at which you're going to get, and this is one of the themes of the show, you can argue, there's going to be a point at which we get tired of fighting. So I, I just, what part of the issue here is that there's this weird mix with Marco where he does have long-term strategic plans. And last season they played out brilliantly, but I don't know what yeah. his long-term strategic plan is at this point. Right. And the other thing is, just on the railgun mm-hmm. point, is they make, kind of a big deal about it but it seems like it should be a huge fucking deal this is proto-molecule technology the martians or someone actually they don't actually know the conians right probably i refer to them as martians they would probably not like Mm -hmm. that have figured out how to use proto-molecule technology in this pretty sophisticated way Mm -hmm. and cool way i mean aside from killing everyone like like Figuring out how to use the lack of inertia in the ring gate station mm-hmm. to be able to have like this ultimate killing. Machine. Yeah, that's quite something. It's, it's, it's pretty Especially cool. Especially given what that station <laughs> has done in, I think it's season three in terms of like punishing people. So yeah, like I, I'm right. surprised by that. And also Marco's sort of transactional relationship with the breakaway Martians slash Laconians in the previous season made sense. It's transactional, mm-hmm. right? I wonder what he thinks is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the the part that I don't quite get, which is what is in it for the Laconians at this point in terms of providing the tech? In Right. Unless they have plans to come yeah, back. Yeah, I guess. Yes. And, you know, yeah. Like, wh- what does Marco think is going to happen? Did he did he sort of buy this idea that all the Laconians want is to go off to their, to Laconia and, like, live their own little private life? Yeah, live Laconia for Laconia's sake. Laconia first. I don't, yeah. I honestly don't know. I really don't. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe this is occasion where we're we'll saying I, I think Holden is correct here. You know, this this should should give everyone pause, including, I'd say, if not Marco, then Rosenfeld. Mm-hmm. Right. She seems alert enough to be like, yes, they gave us this technology. Why? What is in it for them? Like, what is going on that they're building fucking technology if what they want to do is just be in Laconia for Laconia's sake? Why are they building war technology? Well, this. Yes. Right? And. Again, I think part of the issue is, as someone who's not a reader of the books, this is referred to elliptically at various points in season six, but I still don't know, like, all the cards haven't been shown. Now, I guess, hopefully, we will see them in the last episode, but as we've said before, there's a lot riding on this last episode. They've got a lot of loose ends to tie up. <laughs> yes. They, they do. Okay. All right. We, we have a lot of plot to go okay. through. So, Dan, continue. Let us move to part two of the Free Navy, where we pivot to Philip. So, Philip learns that his new boss man, Tadeo, is in the brig. He got there because he tried to contact his brother Moss on Ceres. Philip looks legitimately confused at the expression of non-exploitative family ties. <laughs> Rosenfeld and Marco talk strategy. The inners have bigger ships, but the Free Navy has more numbers, and Marco thinks this gives him the advantage of setting the terms of the upcoming fight. Rosenfeld then shows Marco the clip from last... Over what? I don't know. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) 
Rosenfeld then shows Marco the clip from the last episode of Philip acting like Marco. I presume to sustain Marco's ego by showing that Philip kind of makes a half-decent impression of a sociopath? I don't know. At the same time, Philip uses his privileged access to find out about Tadeo's brother, Moss. Turns out he was killed in the water tank explosion. Philip tells Tadeo, and Tadeo feels super guilty about it since, well, he was one of the Free Navy guys that planted the charges. For possibly the first time this entire season, Philip feels the correct emotion, which is empathy. Anna, how believable do you think it is that Tadeo believed planting explosive charges on series water tanks wouldn't kill any belters? Unfortunately, I think it's actually pretty believable, even though it's not obviously true. Also, I do love the idea that Marco can think he's improved on his own father just because he's been alive. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. That was actually it was a nice uh, touch. Yeah. But a not nice touch that I was going to leave for uh, the debris field, but I, I think it... I mean, it just, it could be important. There's a very portentous shot of Marco's whiskey in this scene, which as a recovering alcoholic is one of my pet peeves is signaling this person might have a problem. Zoom in on alcohol. Oh, no, no. You know? I had a completely different interpretation of that moment because what I saw, okay. no, my interpretation was Rosenfeld was looking at the glass and was actually worried that Marco wasn't drinking, that Marco wasn't celebrating. Maybe I'm wrong about that. That was my interpretation that Rosenfeld, wow. Rosenfeld was looking at Marco. That, I think you had to do some work for the show with that. Maybe, but I actually I think really that's do. true because the problem is Marco is distracted and like not happy and Rosenfeld wants to celebrate. And also, how would you know how much he, he, he has free access to the grog. Yeah, but the grog. Right? Well, look, He's Marco. So they show him drinking a lot so they? far. Like, That's another reason. Yeah, remember he shares it with her at one point. He's had whiskey in almost every episode. I guess he has, but I haven't seen. I live this way. So why would it be like it would not, you know, she knows like that. I don't know. Like, I, I guess I didn't think it would be special for him. I think it was that, remember, Rosenfeld the was the one who suggests that they release the grog You're rations. definitely doing work I am probably here. doing work, but, like, I I think this is all about Rosenfeld trying to keep Marco as on I thought she looked, she, the, it was like she's worried he's drinking too much. Because oh, she's seen him drinking yeah, maybe. a lot. Most of the time that she's run into him. Especially in his quarters, he's been... You know what, listeners? I think you're going to have to comment on this one because this is an interesting question. (laughs) I have to admit, Anna is probably right, but there was... The way I... My first interpretation was that Rosenfeld was worried that Marco was not taking joy in the victory. And that was what I I thought it was. That just makes me laugh. I know. Because... (laughs) Because of all the things for her to be worried about, like... I don't know. I mean, her fundamental just, concern she she, throughout this entire season has been keeping Marco on an, as even a keel as possible. An even keel, yeah. yes, an even keel. Right. Yes, yeah, true. That's true. All right. To get back to your question, which wasn't really a question, but more of a comment, um, <laughs> I do believe Tadeo thought the charges wouldn't necessarily harm any belters. He probably gave him some line of bullshit about like it would be this will go off when no one's around, or which some doesn't such, make any sense. Right? But sure, okay. Yeah, but people yeah. who are doing things for a cause are often under... Can delude you know, themselves, yeah. Yes, they're often in denial about their actions. What I think is interesting is I don't know, and I don't think it's been expressed, is whether Philip knew that Marco planted those charges. I think that was a revolution hmm. for Philip. Maybe. Because his expression there is a lot. No, he's legitimately... Right. It's empathy. It really is. He's leg- I mean, I think he starts crying, you know, like very quietly, but like he's yeah. legitimately moved. And I thought, and you're right, this again might be different interpretation. I thought he was moved because he now realizes the Free Navy is actually killing Belters. 
Um, yeah, right. Well, that did, I don't know if he knew that the that Marco ordered those charges planted. See, this is interesting. I I have to think Marco that I have to think Philip knew that because like the charges were planted when Philip is still in the inner circle, and. Yeah. You know, and I... But but he's also confused. Remember, he tells Marco off. Their relationship fractures, you know, most significantly when he accuses Marco of abandoning Ceres. No, it fractures when he accuses Marco of pouting during the after the battle with the Rossi. But yes, that is one of the sort... That, that is a previous fracture. Okay, previous fracture. Yeah. I would say... Well, okay, fine. One of the fractures yeah. is... And so if he also knew that they had charges planted... Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I feel like he would have said something. <laughs> or I feel like... I don't know. Look at this that would have been a, I, a factor. I think Marco could have deluded like, himself... Or sorry, I think... Not Marco. I think... Philip could have deluded himself as well into thinking that the charges were planted right. and it wasn't that big of a deal. But, eh, but you might I be think right. He, I, I think he didn't know. And I think that this, and that's one of the reasons why it hits him so No, hard. that's fair. That's fair. And, and yes, it, right. it does hit him hard, which again will lead, I assume, to interesting events in the ultimate episode. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about series some more, Dan. All right. Yes, let's move to series. So series part one. The MCRN briefs Avasarala and her staff on the Free Navy's railguns in the center of the ring. Her admirals and the MCRN officials advocate going after Marco and the Pella before they get to the ring because otherwise, who oh boy, there's going to be trouble. Avasarala, however, does not want to abandon Ceres. She goads Bobby into telling Avasarala that it's war and maybe she's gone a little soft. From Illus... Elvia Koye, who you might remember from season four, makes a brief cameo appearance to tell Naomi that there does seem to be some mass energy effect where ships are disappearing when they enter the ring. Holden, being Holden, decides that this is now the most important thing and bigger than the war. He meets with Avasarala and suggests that they should get in touch with Marco and warn him, and nope, Avasarala ain't having that. What Avasarala does want, however, is to forge an alliance with Kamina Drummer. Uh, Dan, if I could please, jump in please here. Do. This was interesting to me. We get to see Avasarala doing her thing about trying to, you know, manipulate and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I wonder why she went to Holden, I guess. That's my sort of question, right? Does she go to Holden? She clearly has Holden come to her, but that's it's because right. she wants to talk about Drummer. Yeah, right. I think because she's got pretty decent intel and presumably knows that, you know, Drummer and Naomi are friends, so that would probably be the best way. Well, why wouldn't she go to Naomi? Oh, because Naomi's... I, the answer to that is, is that I, and I mean this sincerely, have Avasarala and Naomi had a conversation over the last two seasons? I don't think they have. Whereas That's, she has talked to Holden repeatedly. Right. It just seemed weird to me. Like, I don't know. Like, if you think about it in this episode, like this whole season, like Holden really has been a marginal character in a hmm. way. You know yeah. what I mean? He does stuff. But, like, the main action is not No, him. he's not the protagonist in the way that he was in the first three seasons, I think it's safe to say. First four. Right. Yeah. This just felt, I guess this is sort of where I first noticed hmm. that, you know? Because, like, I was like, well, why is she not talking to the person she actually needs to talk to, right? Like, maybe she thinks Naomi wouldn't do it. Maybe she thinks, I don't know. I mean, it's not a... I, so, again, I'll do some work for the show here. If I, my hunch is that it's entirely possible Bobby told Avasarala that Naomi is not super thrilled about the war. And, you know, if you right. remember, like, earlier this season even, Naomi, and I'll get to this later, but Naomi is not happy about killing Belters and so forth. And so I could see why Avasarala would try to get through Drummer through Holden first rather than Naomi. Okay, and this I remember now, this is actually the main thing I wanted to point out here, is that, so, never mind, actually. Okay. 
you know, never mind. That was, it was just like, I guess this was the scene where I kind of recognized that like, wait a minute, like Holden doesn't have a ton to do besides tell people that what's really important is. And I, I assume that's why the writers have given Holden that task. Cause it's really annoying for, <laughs> for a yeah. variety of reasons, but, but I, I, you're right. Otherwise, you know, the only thing Holden apparently does is literally inaction in the sense of like not letting the nuke explode and so forth. Speaking yeah. of which, right. let's anyway. get to the rest of the series. Uh, let's get to get some, some action. action. Yes, in, in, all, in all different meanings of the word. Yeah. Amos yeah. and Bobby bump into each other on a series bar, and one of them has glitter and scratches on them from some brotheling. Amos tells Bobby about Holden disarming the nuke, and Bobby takes the news way better than I expected, frankly. Amos expresses doubts about the war and about Holden and about what he's even doing uh, in the fight, and Bobby spells out why you fight with and for your unit. This seems to register with Amos, who then leaves to find another brothel and invites Bobby to join him. Anna, I have many questions, but to keep this podcast to <laughs> under 10 hours, I will keep it to three. First, why does Avasarala goad Bobby and then get upset at her answers? Second, why does Holden, who, remember, is totally cool with talking to Marco, treat Monica the reporter even worse? Seriously, what the fuck? I don't get that. And third, did Bobby go with Amos? Or did Bobby go with Amos, if you know what I mean? Yes, Dan, I do know what you mean. <laughs> so in order of importance... I, I have to say, Anna looks a little nauseated, so let's just keep going. Yes. yes. In order of importance, Bobby did not go with okay. Amos. I, I just don't see her mixing business and pleasure, mm-hmm. right? Although the series has shown us that that can be successfully done, mm-hmm. right? In Belter culture, where they have the polyamorous families, yes. like on the Tynan, mm-hmm. the Rossi is not the Tynan. No. And the culture that Bobby comes from, I just don't think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Like your unit, your Marine unit, you don't, you, as you, to coin a phrase, you don't screw I would say that. you don't screw where you, you eat you know? would be the other way to put it, yes. Yeah. yeah. As for Holden, we sort of just talked about this. Like he's sort of opaque to me this season. And also he should really like the, the stuff that Monica's yeah. doing, right? Like it's human interest shit that he would eat mm-hmm. up, you know? And... In general, I just want to comment something I said in previous episodes, but I'll just mark it again, which is, in fact, the kind of stuff that Monica's doing is the kind of stuff that reporters do. Mm -hmm. Like, that human interest shit is usually the thing that reporters will gravitate to first when covering a war, right? Like, not necessarily humanizing both sides, but the kind of stories that are, like, sympathy porn, you know? (laughs) Like, that stuff goes viral, right? So what's interesting to me here, though, is that she's doing it at the behest of Avasarala, yeah. right? We know why Avasarala is doing it, which is that she wants the Belters to sympathize with the Earthers. Yes. Monica's flip is that she wants everyone to sympathize with everyone, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's very that's very Holden-esque. It is. That is like exactly the kind of thing that Holden has done mm-hmm. in the past. And- so I don't and know. I'm sure I, listeners I, I might object I, at this point. However, sorry to interrupt. I, I assume listeners at this point might object, pointing out that Monica's crew at one point really did some bad things to Holden, and like therefore Holden will hold a grudge. Yes, true. Again, I'm going to point out that Holden should hold an even bigger grudge for Marco, and yet again is perfectly willing to talk to him, and yet doesn't want to talk to the reporter. I just I find that very strange. Yes. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on. So, Anna, one last question, which I said before, which is, why do you think Avasarala goads Bobby and then does not like Bobby's answer? Well, I mean, I think, uh, we go back to her talking about how she practices, uh, you know, guilting people 
by herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Fair <laughs> uh, enough. This is a, a form of that, I would say. Mm-hmm. It, sometimes if you're really feeling guilty or you're really feeling like you're beating yourself up, like you do want other people to beat up on you too. You know, mm. it's not healthy, right? But I think it is conceivable that that's, that's what's going on there. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Let's uh, conclude the plot discussion with uh, our series part two. And let's pivot to my girlfriend, Kamina Drummer, who brings raided supplies to series. After some initial UN officiousness, Avasarala welcomes her on oh, the view screen. Drummer does not exactly reciprocate. Joseph gets seen by the series doc who informs him that the biological replacement for his arm isn't taking and he'll need a prosthetic. This means he'll need to stay on series, and Michio says she's going to stay with Joseph. Drummer has a sad. Naomi keeps trying to reach out to Drummer, and Kamina keeps avoiding her. Finally, Naomi surprises her on the Tynan, and they have it out. Naomi tells her she needs to ally with Avasarala. Drummer is, let's say, resistant to the idea, but Naomi points out that the inners today are not the inners of the past. Drummer eventually relents in a very well-acted scene, I actually thought, by Kara G. And she and Avasarala come to an understanding in full view of the belters on the series docks. So, Anna, two questions for you. First, at one point, Drummer tells Michio and Joseph that she loved them because they were builders and not fighters. And while I very much want that line to be true because I do stand Drummer... The IR prof in me feels compelled to point out that it's not like they were building anything pre-Marco. They were privateers. That's not building. <laughs> second, <laughs> second, it has been hard to get a fix on where Naomi stands during this entire season. She's clearly unhappy about the war, but her interactions with Drummer, she seems more confident than she has been all season. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, I, I, well... Not assumption. She's clearly more confident in that scene than she has been all season. I think that's also where I got the idea about, like, why did Avasarala not just go directly to mm-hmm. her? Because Naomi's fully on board. Right. But it was idea. I was surprised like she, at how on board Naomi was with the idea, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. She, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it, I, I think we're saying yeah. sort of version of the same things here, which is it's kind of a confusing plot line in terms of character continuity. Yeah. Speaking of which... So Drummer has been hung up on Naomi all season. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, is yeah. she, does she like like Naomi or just like Naomi? And because it's a little bit intense, right? Yes. Like, I want to be very clear. And it's played is very intense. Right. And, 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 yeah. I want to be clear that platonic friendships can have that level of intensity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you ever break up with a friend in adulthood it can be just as painful as any romantic breakup Mm -hmm. but it's just it's sort of weird like i believe it kerji's a great actress right Mm -hmm. i get it but how is where did that come from (laughs) you know so this is where we also might have to mention that the shorts the sort of extra bonus scenes throughout this this season in this case, do provide at least a little backfill, but it doesn't answer your fundamental question. But there is a, a, a bonus scene about the very fact that Drummer clearly L- loves Naomi. Li- I don't know for her in some level. Yes, and yes. Again, it, but, it could be platonic. Right, it could be, and it's not. It's honestly not clear. And I have to, if it's not platonic, that would be a surprise because really they've been very good friends throughout all the seasons that Kara G has yeah. been on. If it was something more than that, it would be. But do you understand, like, why it almost feels like? Yeah, I do. No, like, let me put it this way: the the final scene between the two of them, like the cues that we're getting from her. Yes, I agree with you. But I mean, you you can argue that there are ways in which 
And I, di- I did like how that scene played out, at least from Drummer's side, pointing out that she has essentially lost her entire family yeah. from the Tynan. In no small part, because of Naomi, even though I think Drummer knows that it's not Naomi's fault, it's the choices that Drummer has made, but I, I, she's human, and I totally understand why there is some implicit blame shifting going on to Naomi. But also, I, I really did like Kara G's sort of last moments in this in this exchange where she she says fuck you in the softest sweetest way possible to Naomi because it's the and and actually I thought that that was at least a nice way of ending that scene because it does summarize how drummer feels right and you know the other weird thing about it is that the intensity is not reciprocated from Naomi yeah like from Naomi or, yeah. and it's just an odd tonally kind of for me yeah. I don't know. I, again, I want to be very clear in that I don't want to make something sexual or romantic when it's not. This is the way I would. This but, is the way I would put it on it. Drummer's reactions throughout that scene and Kara G's acting decisions throughout that scene are all about the interpersonal, whereas Naomi's yeah. reactions and Dominique Tipper's reactions throughout that scene are about the interstellar. They're about. Yes. and that's the way I would. <laughs> it, does that make any sense? Like, and, and so as a result, yeah, totally there are times does. where it's off. Yeah. And it just, but her just, like, in, in just Naomi's interaction with it, it's just like, hey, it's been a while. Right. Like, I've missed you. Yeah. Right? Like, that seems much more like kind of just normal ish. Whereas, like, Drummer is this carrying this heavy weight. But that, I will, I will say know? this that's not entirely unbelievable. I mean, surely, Anna, you have, you know, there have been times yeah. where one person in isolation might wind up developing certain feelings that the other but person is It not almost aware of. feels like that's what seems like what makes it read romantic. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. You know? And again, this is just, uh, I mean, I don't really fault the show necessarily on mm-hmm. this. Maybe I do fault it a little bit because I think this is one of those things that um, could have been laid out in a, a season that was I, This is the way I would put it. If, if this series, if this season had been 10 episodes rather than six, the conversation between Naomi and Drummer would have been broken up. There would have been multiple conversations. And I think it would have been able, and that could have actually like allowed the relationship to breathe a little more. Like I also think, you know, there is a reason why it might be more intense on on drummer's side. Although it would, we're doing some work for the yeah. show, or I'm doing work for the show when I say this, is that drummer did decide to save Naomi, yeah. right, over the objections of her right. crew, and it cost her. And it cost her, but that would almost, to me make it make drummers and int- explain her intensity but not kind of the tone of the intensity yeah. like she'd have much more ambivalent feelings and she seems to not really have ambivalent feelings about naomi like no. her feelings for naomi are clear yeah, that's true. she has ambivalence about like where things are going or like about her choices know, in terms of what her choices yeah. but she's like she i don't know i maybe we're spending too much time on this we have thought about it maybe more than the showmakers have <laughs> <laughs> I care about drummer. I care about Kara G. These are important conversations to have, Anna. But yes, I take your yes. Point. Well, uh, you know, I want to have an important conversation with okay. you, Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this episode? Anna, IR is the wrong place for good men, and when it comes to international relations, <laughs> I can be very, very bad. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> There are two elements of IR that I think were interesting in this episode. The first is how fragile versus how robust alliances are. Most of this episode has Avasarala trying to negotiate both old and new alliances. The old one with the MCRN and the new one that she is trying to forge with Drummer. And it does raise the interesting question of how stable alliances are. So if you believe in realism, if you believe in balance of power theory, 
These alliances will be ephemeral at best. It certainly explains why they are all balancing against Marco, but presumably if they actually defeat Marco, everyone will go their separate ways. There is another theory of alliances, however, uh, which was be colloquially described as birds of a feather, which says that countries that are more institutionally alike, like democracies, are more likely to ally with each other. And Mars and Earth are definitely more alike uh, than compared to the Free Navy, and certainly to some extent compared to the Belters as well, which suggests that the Inners will be more closely aligned for longer than Drummer and Avasarala. We will see what happens. We only have one more episode left. The second point is that credible commitments are hard. The fundamental IR question in this episode is whether Avasarala can promise Drummer that once Marco is defeated, assuming he is defeated, the Belters can live free of the Inner's yoke. Given Avasarala's past, and given the distribution of power, that is a difficult promise for her to make. Not because she doesn't want to make it, but because there are not a lot of ways for Avasarala to demonstrate to Drummer that in a post-war situation, she can actually follow through on her promises. And this is actually one of the things, of the themes that, that Avasarala brings up constantly throughout this episode, is the recognition on her part that the Belters perceive her as... A sadistic leader because she has <laughs> tortured Belters in the it's past. It's untrustworthy. Yeah, it's untrustworthy. You know, as someone who's d- demonstrated incredible bigotry. Bigotry, yes. But and, right? and and this comes up, by the way, in the last exchange and in, in the summit meeting between Avasarala uh, and Drummer, right. where Avasarala says at one point, "Look, I many things to the Belters, but I never lied to you." And I think that's the yeah. way in which she's trying to convince Drummer. Look, I know. I have been a right bastard in the past, and I very well might be a right bastard in the future, but I am not lying to you right now when I say I am going to do this. And in some ways, this is one of the ways in which a lot of times when we talk about credible commitment in IR, we try to talk about it through actions. Are there actions that actors can take to persuade others of their intent? But sometimes the other way you can display credible commitment is by having a reputation for honesty and saying this will be the way it is. And if that is believed mm-hmm. to be credible, that can work too. It is interesting to me, Mm -hmm. that one thing that doesn't happen in the construction of that alliance is a conversation about what could the outcome, positive outcome for Belters be, right? What could Avasarala give them? Mm -hmm. What is the bargaining chip that she has besides a good one, which is fewer Belters die? I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, that's our main bargaining chip for the whole alliance is we'll get the war over sooner. And it's not a bad argument. I mean, it's a good argument. Nope, not a bad argument. Good argument. But... It would be sweetened if she could say, and this is what I commit to, right? right? Like this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but that's another way that those alliances get cemented, right? Like, correct. But I assume part of the, <laughs> part of the reason Avasarala can't make those promises is because she's constrained by her alliance with Mars. Yeah, and the only thing I'll point out there is that sometimes people, is that, yeah, those promises get made without having the ability to fulfill them all the time. But maybe that's why Avasarala is not doing yeah. it, right? Like that's she can't she knows that she can't make that right exactly and that is and that's that is a mark of good honest leadership in the sense of you can't overpromise if you want to sustain a a durable relationship and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. (laughs) But Anna, this leads to a question I want to ask you, Anna. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this episode? Dan. Yes. Ultimately, all warfare is class warfare. I actually believe that to be true. Oh, but, Anna, uh, I the, strongly disagree, but I'll let you run with this. Go ahead. <laughs> and yeah, uh, 
I also just want to point out there's two great, great lines uh, in this episode that apply to war, but also apply to class warfare, yeah. right? Which is you fight for who protects your flank. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is stand by the people that we love. And those are both great philosophies for labor to have, as well as for any, you know, country or, or war fighting unit to have. Delightful endorsements of class solidarity. That is my critique. It's not a critique of capitalism. But one of the things I like about the show in general is I do think that it is informed by a belief system very similar to my own. But, it, but it's just unusual to see a series or a world built on in a mainstream piece of culture mm. that is informed by some of these ideas. Like, like we talked about Don't Look Up. Being a liberal in Hollywood is easy, mm. right? And making sort of surface level messages about progressive ideas is pretty mm. easy. But what I love about The Expanse is that they clearly think in terms of class, mm. right? Like there is like, and and they think in terms of labor versus capital. Mm-hmm. They really do. Like that is something that's threaded through the entire yes. series. I don't know if I all, we always agree and it's always my worldview, but I just appreciate that this is part of their thinking. And I'll, I'll say before listeners start writing already, other science fiction worlds have that as well, uh, for sure. But I think it's interesting that this is a mainstream popular success. Mm-hmm. I would, that is and in that. some ways, this gets to what I like about the show. This is really the title of this podcast will be "Why We Watch," but uh, <laughs> but in some, I agree with you that that theme runs through the the show. But it's not the only theme that runs through the show. No, of course, and not. that's no, no, one. No, no, of, no. And one of the great things about the Expanse universe, as it were, and and the way they've done this is recognizing that that is an important thread, but also the nature of man to some extent is an important oh. thread as well. Dan, it's not like I don't believe that as well. No, no, I mean, I'm not like a true cultural Marxist. I'm not saying like all, like everything can be boiled down to materialism. No, 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 I But I I think that it's just interesting, right? Like they do do all of this. Like they've thought through the ramifications of all these different themes. And And it takes them all seriously. Yeah, it takes them all seriously. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of themes, Dan, it's time for themes and quotes. Do you have a theme? I do, Anna. And, you know, we sometimes look for elliptical themes. And sometimes it's the title of the damn episode, Anna. So (laughs) this theme is why we fight. The inners control the station. I will live under the inners yoke. And I will help Joseph find a way to also. But now is not the time for self-pity bullshit. It's time to keep your eyes on the enemy and wait for the next time they slip up. Because I still think we're the good guys. And I'd rather do a little less soul searching and a lot more fighting back. Shot throughout this entire episode are literally questions that the characters ask each other of why they are fighting. Why should Avasarala risk going to the ring? Why should Amos stay? Why should Drummer join Avasarala? What is interesting in some ways is that the answers that are given are interpersonal and not much to do with international relations. Which, by the way, is the right answer at the unit level. When Bobby talks to Amos about you fight to, you know, for the people who are protecting your flank, that is absolutely the correct answer, you know, at the unit level. And there's a very, like, you know, for, for older listeners, there's a very infamous video that I think it was Norman Schwarzkopf right before the, the start of the first Gulf War, in which he talked about fighting for your unit when he was talking to the troops before they invaded Iraq, and that is absolutely correct. It is tougher to make that argument at the international or interplanetary level, and it is interesting to me that Bobby (laughs) gets the difference, because Bobby tells Amos the reason they're fighting at the unit level, but she also tells Avasarala the reason they're fighting 
at the larger level. And so in some ways, Bobby, of all the characters on this show, at least in this particular episode, is the one that that understands why we fight at different levels. And by the way, listeners, uh, in case for those of you who aren't aware, the reason this episode is probably called Why We Fight is that Why We Fight refers to a short series of propaganda films that Frank Capra made during World War II in response to Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. It was basically an effort at propaganda to explain why it is that the democracy should in fact fight the Nazis uh, during the Second World War. And I think the implicit purpose of this episode is to say that even though sometimes war is held, there are still reasons to fight it. Anna, what about your theme? <laughs> yes, war is hell, and yet it continues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we keep we keep having yes. them. So weird. And and could point out that actually this is where these themes of class and sort of solidarity, what kinds of solidarity make sense, mm-hmm. right? I would say ultimately, I think you're right. Ultimately, it's all about. It is actually all about the flank. If you don't have that, then you then you're you not going to win. You're not going to be able to fight. Yeah. You can't do it. And, and what pro- propaganda often does mm-hmm. is cre- is either points out or creates the illusion of that flank. It socially constructs right? the flank. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like when people the, the humanize the mm-hmm. other, you know, it's because to, it's to create that connection, that feeling of like, oh, well, we're actually all in the same foxhole, right? right? Like there's no individual foxhole. We're all in the same mm-hmm. foxhole. Um, I said that as though it's something that people say all the time, but I, I don't <laughs> There's only one foxhole and we're all mm-hmm. in it there. That's, that sounds like a quote, but it's not. So uh, I have a theme too. There we go. It is a little more elliptical than yours. It is not in the title of the episode. <laughs> and what I came up with is war as an equalizer. In the end, the only thing that matters is fighting for who's covering your flank. Doesn't matter if they're saints or assholes. They're your people. War is the wrong place for good men. Good or bad, it's the same place for everyone. It's a true cliche, end quote, uh, you know, war uh, grinds people Mm -hmm. down. And I think we usually think of that as a pretty obviously bad thing. (laughs) You know, that it's a a meat grinder. I mean, people Mm -hmm. die, casualties, etc. But I also see in this episode some indications of, like, it also creates uh, a little more humanity in people sometimes hmm. like the the process it's not the violence of it mm-hmm. though it's like it's the pressure cooker of hmm. it right it is the self-examination that has to mm-hmm. come um, from being in a war war situation it is the ways that all cho- all these choices are life and death and you have to kind of decide who you are hmm. and i think for me that's most obvious with avasarala mm-hmm. right all of these tragedies have made her a better person. Yeah. Actually, yes. No, she's right? a much better person now than she was in, you know, the pilot of this show. Yeah. And, and I think that's true of Kamina as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think Kamina was a bad no. person, but it's her tragedies that have kind of softened her edges mm-hmm. and made it possible for her to make what she, I'm sure, considers compromises. Oh, yeah. And and then also, you know, for Michio and Joseph, just saying like, you know what, we're just going to learn to live with the inners. This is what we have to do, and we're going to do I'm it. I'm just going to point out it's Michio that makes that choice, not Joseph necessarily. Sorry. But yes, I agree with you. Right. <laughs> well, Joseph is apparently on painkillers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and furthermore, I think resisting the changes that come with being in these intense situations and having to make these high-stakes decisions mm-hmm. is something a sociopath does. If you are able to resist all of the kinds of introspection that happen 
at that level, then you get a, you get a Marco. Yeah, right? I would put it slightly. Di- Only a sociopath remains the same person. Right. I, Throughout the way I would I, I would refine this slightly, which is I think you you point out something really important here, which is as much as we think about war as a traumatizing experience, and it is, it is possible during a war that you actually discover your better self, and I think that's yeah. that is a good way. I, I'm not to take away from the idea of war being incredibly traumatizing. And we no, because have I also think. There right. is also a way in which war allows you to find your worst self. And I think Marco yes. is the example. And, and others, you know, to some extent, Philip, we, we've really seen that as well. And so it can go either way. And that's in some ways one of the scariest things about war, at least at the interpersonal level. Now, oh, Dan. Oh, gosh. All these things hitting us. It's the Martian Navy, the remains. It's the debris field, and where we talk about the things we didn't get a chance to mention earlier. Dan, you go. First. Oh, I've got a lot. First of all, it, yeah, you do I have apologize. a lot. Actually. Sorry, <laughs> we can alternate if you want. So I'll do, try to do this quickly. First of all, did the Expanse writers have a drinking game this season, saying like for people to say that no one owes series a goddamn thing because like everyone keeps saying <laughs> the UNN admiral says it in this episode, but like Rosenfeld has said it before. What the hell's going on? Poor series. I feel bad about that. Second, I did like how Avasarala reacts to the news that Prax delivers about the possible solution to uh, Earth's food and climate problem. It's almost identical to Amos in that she's almost stunned that just this normal guy does something good. And it, again, shows the, the link between Amos and Chrissy, as it were. A quick shout out. Again, we've talked plenty about minor characters in, in The Expanse. And I wanted to shout out Joe Perry, who is the actor who plays Tadeo. And is really only two episodes, I believe, and is really carved out an interesting character. And, and, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And so well done there. Okay, I have to, this is a continuity thing. We see a cameo from Elvia Koye communicating with Naomi. Am I misremembering something, Anna? Or I thought Marco had pretty much established a blackout at the ring in terms of the ability to communicate between the solar system and other ring worlds. Yeah. You okay. know, I mean, like, I could tell you, like, how the book gets around some of that, okay. but they didn't establish it. So let's just, it's fine. It was nice to see it's another cameo. Yes. Yay. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. So. Okay. I have a brief comment about Joseph's abs. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, good for Samir Salem, who's the actor who plays him. But there's a scene at the beginning of this episode where his, like, you know, arm is cut off and, like, he's struggling, but his shirt is open and you see some rock hard abs there. And, like, I... I, I did laugh. I didn't mind it, Dan. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not. I'm. It may have been, ext- you know, sort of, you know, uh, not necessary, but I didn't mind it. I'm not. Oh, mad. that's that's generous of you, Anna. I, I appreciate that. Okay. But it was. I just thought you would. I <laughs> thought you would appreciate that. If Vanessa Smith's last line as Michio in this series is to tell Kamina, "You can go," that is a good line, well delivered. I just. Yeah. I, I liked Michio's arc to some extent. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, if that's her final line, good for her. And also in that scene, Anna, uh, Sandrani castigates Drummer, and furthermore, they actually, like, film the castigating of Drummer. And I assume that they want to go viral with that, but I'm honestly not sure what Sandrani's <laughs> political standing is at this point. It was just a weird little moment, and I assume we'll see how that plays out. It's yeah. just it's just trolling, I suppose. I mean, I, I think Twitter must exist in this universe. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And that is what I thought when I saw that scene was like, oh, they're going to go viral. And uh, just my last point, some of the reaction shots from the main cast, we've talked a lot about the sort of minor characters or, or the supporting actors in this season. But what struck me is that in the main cast, 
There are a lot of reaction shots from these actors. Kara G when dealing with the UN official, Shora Dashlu when responding to Holden, um, and West Chatham in particular looking at his hand, like the, the, the right hand that he would normally use to form a fist when Bobby talks about fighting in 100 years. Those are just small little gems. And again, it's one of the things that I love about the show. And finally, I, I, related to this, I, I, particularly Agdashlu, I think Avasarala is at peak Avasarala in her encounter with Drummer in the last scene in this episode. Both the diplomacy the efforts at persuasion and also her outfit, which was banging. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. She's she's got yeah. game wardrobe wise this entire season. Anna, what about you? I have rel- relatively few okay. things compared <laughs> to Dan. I, I have not seen all the bonus uh, reels mm-hmm. yet, but I'm pretty sure they don't have the one that I want, which would be just a series of clips from the news feeds. <laughs> Like, what does journalism like look like? Like the political like, ads from right? last season or the season? No, the political yeah, ads from season yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, the showrunners seem to have put a lot of thought into this. Anna Hopkins and is Anna, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, oh, okay. Good it, to know. Shout out to the Annas and Annas out there. This is a problem we all have. <laughs> <laughs> there is no one uh, way to pronounce our name. It's always going to be a problem. Parents, why do you do this to us? <laughs> Although I have a theory that having a name like this makes you a stronger person go. because you're constantly having to correct people. So you got to develop some, you know, yeah. chutzpah. Anyway, so Anna Hopkins did a thoughtfully screenshot the lower third of her Lucky Earther piece because I was like, there seems to be a bug there. There seems to be like an identifying like CNN style mm-hmm. tag. And the network or news organization is Nevasila or Nevasila. <laughs> Navashla, I think that's it, right? It's Czech. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it means independent. Oh, perfect. In Czech. Well, d- well done, Expanse. That's like yes. again, we've talked before about how like good shows get the details right, and this is that's a good example of this. Yeah. Right. There's also a crawl <laughs> at one point that says, and I this is an exact quote: "Poll colon Anaro's free navy support down." <laughs> <laughs> I thought I saw it, and then I had to stop and rewind it, and I did laugh out loud when I confirmed what I thought I saw. Dan, what do you think the methodology was (laughs) on that poll? Like, what? (laughs) Anna, I'm going to suggest maybe that was a Twitter poll. That that might be the answer. The methodology is questionable. Like, yeah, how would you actually manage to successfully... It has to be all electronic at this point. That would be the only way the survey could function. Yeah, Right. And we do get in, in season four when they did the um, ad, the UN ads that had some kind of um, uh, verification right. for them. Like perhaps they've they've cracked that code, but it did make me laugh because how do you poll an insurgency? <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, I, I, it did make me think of like, what if you saw a poll like poll uh, Taliban souring on bin Laden? You know, like what what would who would do it? Who would do the poll? <laughs> That's another question yes. I have. Anyway. I mentioned this earlier. At one point, the doctor on series asked Joseph how he feels on a 1 to 10 pain scale. Mm-hmm. Dan, uh, I was surprised that they're still using that scale oh. in, in this future because it's bullshit. Oh. <laughs> Everyone should go read. There are lots of good books about the opiate epidemic. Uh, the one that is my favorite is Sam Quinones' Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. It's just beautifully written. And also has some great reporting. And as far as I know, he is one of the first reporters to really find the paper trail of how Purdue Pharma consciously created this idea of a pain scale mm. and this idea that pain is something that it is what they, they invented, calling it the fifth vital sign. Hmm. Pain is real. 
chronic pain is real. Mm -hmm. There are problems when we start to restrict access to pain meds for people that have true chronic pain. And there's also a history of doctors discounting the pain of women and the pain of people of color. All of those are things that are true. Mm -hmm. But the pain scale is fake. (laughs) It it is just not a thing. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that in the future that they've either invented a way to truly measure pain, right? Or maybe they've invented non-narcotic pain meds, which is kind of the holy grail. That would be great if possible, yes. Of of pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of sad (laughs) is each successive iteration of pain medicines, that's usually the selling point that they try to say at first. That's what actually happened with oxycodone is that it was sold as less addictive. The other thing Sam Quinones digs out and shows proof of is they sold this bullshit line to doctors saying if someone's quote unquote really in pain, Mm -hmm. they won't get addicted to (sighs) painkillers. And again, it is true that people who are really in pain need Mm painkillers. You should prescribe them painkillers. But it is impossible not. There is no like level of pain that will keep you from getting addicted to them. And I'm sorry to sort of bring us all down a little bit here, but it it sort of made me laugh ruefully, let's say, mm-hmm. um, when that particular like line happened. Yeah, that brought us all down. <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. Um. Happy New Year. And that, I guess, you know, uh, trigger warning, that Sam Quinones book is also not uh, happy. But it's very good. <laughs> and so I'll somehow bring us around. A lot of science fiction is like that, Dan, right? It's all, it's good, but kind of a downer. That's why we love it. Well, we this talking about this, this brings us naturally to, you know, coming up on future podcasts. We're obviously going to talk about the ultimate episode of The Expanse. But then after that, Anna. It's Invercary. Invercary. <laughs> we invented the word. We can pronounce it however we want. And, yes. and it is, in some ways, a balancing out to the expanse, right? It's silly. Yes. These are silly movies. <laughs> yes. Many of them are enjoyable. Uh, one of the ones we're going to do is The Day After Tomorrow, which is one of my laundry movies. <laughs> and also one of the movies that I will, if I am, no one flips channels anymore, I guess, but... I do have a feature on my YouTube TV where they say, like, what's showing right now on various channels, which is like flipping channels, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. But Day After Tomorrow is one of the movies that I will, like, stop and watch no matter what. Fair and enough. it's not a good movie. No. <laughs> nope. But I, I enjoy it nonetheless, mainly for, for Jake Gyllenhaal. And then we're also <laughs> going to do Stargate. Yes. Right? Which I know a lot of people really love. I have do not have an opinion formed on it. I've never seen it. I have never so. seen it either. So I'm. this will be an interesting experience. And I think and we're also going to do Independence Day. Again, yes. And that is uh, one of those movies that it's hard to say, is that a good movie or not? Right? <laughs> like, it is very enjoyable. It is a lot of fun. Right? <laughs> yes. But it's also very silly. Oh, yes. And yes. <laughs> one of the reasons I'm interested to take on Emmerich is that a theme of our podcast that I, I think we're now pretty conscious of is we often discuss those distinguishing characteristics that that elevate something beyond genre or that elevate it beyond like just being bad like what right. makes a bad good movie or good bad movie yes and I we're probably gonna get a chance to talk about that <laughs> oh I think Emmerich's gonna Emmerich area is definitely gonna provide us opportunities for that 
All right. Once again, um, you can give us money if you want at our Patreon at patreon.com slash space the nation. You can tell friends and neighbors. You can give us a rating and a review. Also, you know what? We just like you. Like, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. Hope you're as excited about Immercary as we are. And until then. Keep this channel open for more.